Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Ginny Smith. And you find us this week at the Cambridge Science Centre, where we're recording this programme in front of this wonderful audience. This week, we're taking you on a scientific journey through time, looking at some of the key experiments and breakthroughs that have led to our present-day knowledge. With us are a team of historians and scientists who are each going to show you their favourite experiment of the past and explain to you why they think it's so important. Now, coming up, we'll be recreating the orbits of the planets. We'll be building a battery from scratch, putting the hands of the naked scientists under the microscope to find out what's living on them. And we'll be highlighting the ways in which your memory can play tricks on you. But first up, material scientist Paul Coxon is going to take us back to ancient Greece to explain the basis of one of the most famous experiments of all time and one which made the ancient Greek mathematician, physicist, engineer, inventor and astronomer Archimedes a household name 2,000 years later. Hello, Paul. Please welcome Paul Coxon. (laughs) Paul, what are you going to show us? I'm going to show you Archimedes' principle. It's a very ancient experiment, and it uses how materials behave in fluids to solve a historical fraud. When you say Archimedes, this is the bloke that ran down the street in the nude, isn't it? Eureka, yes. He, he put himself in the bath, and this is how he came to the discovery. So he was a Eureka streaker? He was a Eureka streaker. I'm not naked. I'm going to show you with some <laughs> plasticine. Right, so we have in front of us two tanks with blue liquid, and they have a, a sort of tap coming out of the side of the tank. Yes, and the water is just level with the tap, um, so when we put anything in the water, the level will rise and it will trickle out. What we're going to do is we're going to immerse some materials in the water, raise the level and measure how much water is displaced, how much water is pushed out of the way. In front of the tanks, we've got two balances, weighing scales. So the water will come trickling out of the tank and and we'll we'll be able to weigh how much weight of water comes out when you put the objects into the tank. Yes, and if we measure the weight of the water, because we know the density of the water, we know the volume of water which has been pushed out of the way. This is a very important property of buoyancy. When you put a a, a body in water, it displaces the water out of the way. So I've got a little boat here, and this is how a boat floats. It pushes the water out of the way, and the weight of the water which is being pushed out of the way is equivalent to the weight of the boat pushing downwards. And these balance each other out, and this is how the boat floats. It's called buoyancy. Archimedes worked for a a king, a tyrant, 
and the Greeks were fighting against the Romans and they had a, a military victory. So in tribute, the king made a votive wreath to be placed on the statue of a god in a temple. So the, the king gave his goldsmith a, a known mass of gold. He knew how much gold there was and he said, go off, melt that, make it into a beautiful wreath for me. But he was very suspicious. He thought that the goldsmith had, had taken a little bit of gold and had kept some for himself and had bulked up the rest of the gold with some cheaper material like lead or copper. Now, of course, that would mean that the crown would look the same, but it wouldn't be all gold. There'd be something else in there, so the weight might not be quite right. It would look the same, and it would weigh the same. So if we just check on our balances now, I have a, a mass of gold, and I have a crown, and they're both exactly the same, 524 grams. So they both look the same, but they have different volumes. So we've got two plasticine objects, one big chunk of plasticine in a big blob, one which you've made into your crown. They both yes. weigh 524 grams, but I don't know whether both of them are made of only plasticine. That's the thing, that's the challenge which Archimedes was trying to solve. He wanted to know the purity of the crown, but he couldn't change the shape of the crown, he couldn't melt it because it was a sacred object. So what he needed to do, he needed to measure the volume. So what I'm going to do now is put in our known gold sample and it should displace a known volume of water. So we're putting one blob of the plasticine into one of the tanks and water is now trickling out into the bowl. And I'm going to now we've got the, the crown, which is... It, we know it weighs exactly the same, but we, we know it's made of plasticine, perhaps with something else added, and we're now going to put that in the other tank. And we're going to displace the water, and we're going to measure how much water the crown displaces. So basically, because the... Uh, objects are taking up volume or space inside the tanks. They've raised the level of the water above the, the level at which the pipe comes out and the water that's being pushed upwards is now flowing out and we're weighing it. Yes, and this is what Archimedes discovered in the bath. When he was given this problem to solve, he went on, on one of his very rare baths in a public bath and as he lowered himself into the water, he noticed the water level rose up and it slopped over. And this is what inspired him to do this experiment. And we use it today um, in the design of ships and submarines. So it has, although it's a very ancient experiment, it has real-life applications today. So this one with the, the non-crown plasticine, this is, non this this is almost finished, and we're at 349, 350 grams yes. of water, so that's about 350 millilitres of water, isn't it? So yes. the volume that we've put in must be about 350 millilitres. Right, so the crown one, we've now got a total mass of water of 370 grams has come off. So the crown is actually displacing more water. more water than the original blob of plasticine. So what's that tell us? This tells us that the volume of the crown, although it weighs the same as this gold, uh, the gold standard, its volume is bigger, so its density is less. So this was a, a, a key way of finding out that the density had been changed, had been cut and mixed with some cheaper material. And unfortunately, the poor goldsmith, he, he lost his head. And you've made your one less dense because it's got some balls of wood in there by the look of it, your crown. Yes, so wood is, is less dense, so it bulks up the volume and it displaces more water. And you won't be losing your head today because you did a wonderful job. Paul Coxon from Material Science, thank you very much. It's common knowledge nowadays that planets move in orbits around stars, and in our case we move around the sun. 
But before the 1600s, it was thought that the planets and the stars moved around the Earth. It took astronomers and mathematicians years of painstaking data collection and analysis and a huge leap of faith to completely turn our understanding of the universe on its head. But finally, that moment came. Astronomer Jerry Gilmore is here to tell us more. Jerry, what was it that finally changed people's minds and made them realise that actually we weren't the centre of the universe? Oh, actually, it's a, a really fundamental advance in the way that mankind looks at the universe and, and everything, all of science. We call it the Copernican principle. It underlies everything in our modern world. But it really was just a change of attitude. There was no particular experiment. There was no particular new mathematics. The, the key challenge that people had, and it dates right back to the ancient Greeks, is the ancient Greeks said everything in the universe is based on the ratios of integers. And they very quickly discovered that uh, music in particular was based on uh, ratios of nice numbers uh, and shapes that people find pleasing, the architectural columns and so on, were based on the ratios of integers. And so they developed the whole classical architecture and classical music and so on and realised that this principle underlaid everything that our minds found pleasing and therefore this must be the way the universe was put together. So, so that's ratios of whole numbers that we like. Pi came along and messed it up, frankly. But, yeah, basically there were ratios of integers, ratios of whole numbers. So all of science became a question of looking for patterns. But, of course, the fundamental weakness of Greek science and that continued for thousands of years, or 1,000, 1,500 years, was that people went looking for the pattern that they thought was nice. And so that was why, fundamentally, science didn't advance. So people did observe, for example, the motion of Mars across the sky, where you see Mars actually changes direction on the sky and goes back and goes forward again. Now, you can model that mathematically very simply. The Greeks knew how to do it. You have a basic circle. You go around the circle. And, but if you ca need to change direction, then you need a second little circle that's sitting on top of the main circle, which is, which is going the other way. And so sometimes the two circles are on the right part of the track so that you're going in the same direction and you just go a bit faster than one circle on its own. But then some of the time the two circles are fighting against each other and so the planet will go backwards. So it does a little sort of loop-the-loop -loop as it's going it does, round. It does a little loop-the-loop. -loop. Now, if, if you try and make a ratio or a tone out of a loop-the-loop, -loop, you go, mm, and it's horrible. <laughs> and so they didn't like it. But this process, they're called epicycles. You can build as many epicycles as you like and you get a perfect description of the planetary orbit. So there was no problem with that. Well, Copernicus came along and said, well, I'd like to get rid of these jolts in the music, I want some nice tones, and realised that you would get nicer tones if everything was centred on the sun, and so this is probably the way that nature actually does it. No one took much notice of them. The few people who did ran into serious trouble with religion. <laughs> uh, so it was about 100 years later that people started to take it seriously. Where did this idea come from that music went with planetary orbits? Because that seems quite disparate to me, quite different things. Oh, that, that dated right back to the Greeks, actually. And they, they were right, uh, that the, the ratios of basic simple numbers do actually describe the orbits as we see them, so long as you ignore the second most obvious thing in the sky, which is the moon. But nothing much happened after Copernicus till Kepler came along. It was about 100 years later. And Kepler said, well, I'm going to find those patterns, and realised eventually he found some patterns which worked only if you used the sun as the central reference, and incidentally you get rid of the epicycles by using uh, ellipses rather than pure spheres, but that was a sort of detail, really. But he found these magic ratios of numbers, that what we now call Kepler's laws, so the square of the time it takes to go around an orbit is related to the cube of the distance from the sun. And so that was a ratio of nice integers, twos and threes. 
everything worked fine. And he said, well, this must be, must be the truth. But his book was uh, called On the Harmonies of the, uh, the Spheres. So again, he said, I have found a set of patterns which work as musical tones. And, so again, it's this idea that if something is neat and tidy and sounds nice and looks nice, then it's probably right. That's right, yeah. But nonetheless, this idea that, hey, let's just look at what the information on the sky is telling us and take ourselves away from the centre led to the whole of modern science... You've been teasing us a lot by telling us that the planets make these beautiful harmonic sounds. Do you think we can use our audience here to illustrate some of those sounds? Yeah, well, in fact, that's what, uh, that's what Kepler actually did. Kepler actually wrote a book called On the Harmonies of Music, in which most of the uh, planetary orbits were described. And his technical scientific book, in which he published the data on the orbits, the planets are represented as musical tones. Are you guys feeling in the mood for a bit of a sing-song? So, let's go. The planets nearest the sun move fastest, and so they have the highest pitch tone. Now, of course, what we have to do is speed everything up a bit because it takes the Earth a whole year to go around the sun, and if you're just sitting here humming for a whole year, you'll probably get bored, and the audience certainly will. So we're going to speed everything up. So the first thing we need to do, then, is get the fast-moving planet Mercury, and Mercury goes whizzing around at a high pitch, and so for Mercury, we're going to have all the primary school children, and you're going to sing a tone which goes... Where each one of those ups and downs corresponds to the, a year on the planet Mercury. So, primaries, let's do this. And then, as soon as you've got going, then we're going to go on to Venus, the next planet out. And of course, that's for the women in the audience. And you do the same thing, but with half the range. Then out to the Earth. And the Earth was the domain of, of boredom and destitution and going to die and so on. And so that's where all the teenagers can come in and do the Earth and a nice hum. And then we get to Mars, which is, of course, the male. You can see where these things come from, right? I mean, there's a good logical background behind all these things that we now joke about. So the men in the audience are going to do the tone for Mars. Okay, let's practice that. And as Chris introduced, we have these giant minds behind us, so they're going to be the giant planets and, and rumble away quietly in the background. So let's start then with Mercury and the primary school kids. Okay, you ready? And you keep on going, round and round. Venus cuts in. Come in, Venus. Okay, Earth. Now Mars and the Giants. Now what is that if not harmony? Well done. Obviously it's really useful to know that we go around the sun and not vice versa, but is this actually used in modern astronomy and physics? Well, the most useful everyday application is the fact that we don't actually all go around the sun at all. Uh, the sun itself moves around the centre of mass of everything. So the sun is actually orbiting around a point that's above its surface. And we use those wobbles in the sun being dragged around by the planets to discover planets around other stars. So using exactly those harmonies and the, little, the very high frequency funny noise that the sun would make, a sort of eek, <laughs> uh, is how we find planets around other stars. Thanks so much. That was Jerry Gilmore. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Ginny Smith. This week, we're looking at some of the most important experiments and discoveries in the history of science. Still to come, we'll be testing your memory and finding out what stars are made of. But first, we're staying a little bit closer to home to discuss the discovery 
of gravity. Now, Hugh Hunt's an engineer from Trinity College, which is also the home of Isaac Newton. If you didn't know who Isaac Newton was, he was the inventor of gravity. Before that, we all floated around. Hugh Hunt, welcome. Hey, Hugh, you have brought with you a bag. So yeah. what, what have you got in your bag? I have one Newton. You probably know that an apple weighs about 100 grams, and 100 grams is uh, one Newton of force. Is it true that Newton did fall asleep under this apple tree and had an apple drop on his head, and this is how he had the breakthrough intellectually that something is pulling the apple down? No. In fact... <laughs> yeah, we can all go home now. In fact, Newton himself said that wasn't true, but the story uh, was told so often that later on in life he just accepted that it was a good story, so later on he said it was true. What was people's concept of the idea of gravity before Newton came along and actually put some numbers on it then? But one of the things that people had trouble with was the idea of a force because everybody thought that things naturally just slowed down. If you slide something along the floor, it stops. And the laws of motion were that things naturally stop. But then Newton came up with this idea that actually things will keep moving unless there's a force. Well, that's quite a groundbreaking sort of idea, really, isn't it? Because obviously here on Earth everything does stop. So how did he make that intellectual leap then? Well, he started thinking about motion in terms of rates of change of position and acceleration, and he had this idea of, of momentum. And if you think of an, ap an apple which drops, it starts off not moving, and it gets faster and faster, and it makes that lovely apple sound when you catch it. And the idea then is there must be a force because the apple is accelerating. And the thing that he started thinking about was... Well, Kepler and others had realised that astronomical bodies orbited. There's a force, the force of gravity. Could the force that's holding the moon into orbit be the same as the force that causes the apple to fall to the ground? How was this received by people when he proposed this? Well, he did a nice experiment, a, a thought experiment, which made it rather easy for people to... Uh, to perceive it. And I wonder if I could get a volunteer from the audience to help with the experiment. And your name is? William. William, excellent. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to hold this apple and if you just drop it and it falls straight down, OK? Now what I want you to do is to throw it towards me. Now I want you to throw it towards me again. I'm stepping further away. We're now about eight feet away. Yeah, now I want you to throw it... Now this time I want you to throw it harder and I'm going to... We're about ten feet away. Oh. OK, <laughs> now the further... I am away from you. The further you throw it, the curve is less. Now, what Isaac Newton did was to say, well, if I throw this really hard, it's going to curve around and it might land somewhere on the other side of Cambridge. Or throw it harder, it might land in New York. Throw it harder, could get all the way around, go all the way around the earth and come back and hit me on the head. I see. So what he's saying is that because the Earth is curving away from the apple, because the Earth is a ball, and the apple is falling towards the Earth, if you throw the apple hard enough, eventually what's going to happen is that the Earth is going to curve out of the way of the path of the apple, so the apple never actually is going to hit the ground. That's absolutely right. And and so when we put something into orbit, we are effectively firing, or you know, he's throwing his apple sufficiently hard that it is continuously falling towards the ground but never quite hitting it. And this transformed, absolutely transformed, the way that we think of motion of astronomical bodies. And the next thing he did was he worked out an equation 
which fitted in exactly with Kepler's laws. Let's give William a round of applause. Thank you very much, William. <laughs> so tell us about this equation then. What, what was that equation? For motion in a circle, there is a force required, a centripetal force, to uh, cause a motion to go in, in a circle. Now, perhaps best if I demonstrate it, really, because... He's getting a brick out of his bag. I'm worried now. <laughs> um, it looks like something you ram-raid a shop with. It's what is right. this? And so what, what I have here is... Now, let's have another volunteer. What's your name? Lutzi. I have a tennis ball, and Lutzi, you can tell that it's a tennis ball. It weighs about 50, 60 grams. It's regular. And Except it's got a lump of rope going it's through got it. A lump of, it's got a rope attached to it. Well, the rope passes through a tube, which is convenient to hold on to. The other it's end, a sort of aluminium tube with a rope running through the middle of it, right. and the other a ball end, on one end and a house brick and on I've the got other. A house, and I've got a house brick on the other end. And, and the rope is, what, a metre, metre and a half long? And the house brick, it's, it's a heavy house brick, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, heavier. And if you drop the brick, the, obviously that's just yeah, going to pull the, the rope brick, through. There we go. One okay. brick dropped onto the ground. And the tennis ball is very light. There's no way the tennis ball can hold up the weight of the brick. Well... I'm going to make the tennis ball lift up the brick by using the acceleration of circular motion, the force, centripetal force, that Isaac Newton talked about when he was thinking about apples and gravity and the moon. How are you going to do that? Well, so let's see. I'd like you to hold the brick just flat on your hands, right? Now, I've got the tennis ball, and I'm going to start swinging it around our heads like this. And I want to... I'm swinging it faster and faster and faster... And there we go. The house brick is up in the air. (laughs) The remarkable thing about that, Chris, is that we can all see just how big that force is. And it makes you realise that when things are going around in orbits around the planets, that we might think of gravity as being a quite weak force, but it holds the whole of the universe together. So in other words, that is the demonstration practically of what is actually holding our planets, our little clutch of planets around our sun, our moon around our Earth and other planets around other stars in other solar systems. Absolutely right. Hugh Hunt from the Engineering Department of Cambridge University. Now moving on from gravity to something that makes up 75% of the matter in the universe, hydrogen. In the 1600s, Robert Boyle showed that he could make the gas when he mixed iron filings with an acid. But no one knew exactly what it was that he'd actually made. It took another 100 years for an ex-Cambridge scientist, Henry Cavendish, who ended up leaving the university without even getting a degree, to figure out that you can combine hydrogen with oxygen to make water. Chemist Peter Wothers is here to tell us more about it. Why was this such an important discovery? Well, so hydrogen had been discovered um, even before Boyle first prepared it. There was a a physician, Van Helmont, who invented the word gas. He noticed these bubbles that come out when you mix acids with different substances, and one of them was with metals, just like Boyle later looked at. But Boyle noticed that this, this gas was flammable. But later this was studied, this was in 1736 now, at the Royal Society, Uh, John Maud brought some samples to demonstrate in front of his colleagues there this this amazing flammable gas. And I've brought a balloon with me, if I I just pick this up, you can probably hear the squeaky balloon. And uh, he didn't have balloons in those days, they had to use bladders, okay, (laughs) so this was the bladder from from an animal. I'm Um, quite glad you didn't bring a bladder full of hydrogen. Anyway, so he had some bladders filled with this flammable gas, and he amazed his colleagues by igniting this gas. And we're going to do this now. now so OK, should we have a countdown, everyone? Three, two, 
that was brilliant. So there was a sort of fireball. I could feel the heat coming off it. But it was over very quickly. And you could probably hear that kind of popping noise. Exactly. So this was the reaction, of course, with the hydrogen, with, well, we now know, with the oxygen from the air. But it really wasn't understood at this time, in 1736, what was going on. In fact, there was a lot of confusion between other flammable gases as well. So, I mean, we're all familiar that we use uh, gas for cooking at home, but that's not hydrogen, of course. This is, this is methane, predominantly, uh, but this is also flammable. So these gases were mixed up. I mean, miners knew about uh, flammable gases. They, knew, they came across methane and so on, and the terrible explosions. But, and they compared in 1736 at the Royal Society samples that had been brought up out of mines with this hydrogen and they noticed that one of the things, the the flame is slightly different colour, but they didn't know what was going on. Now we move to Henry Cavendish. He prepared hydrogen in 1766 and he's credited with the discovery because he was really careful about uh, uh, how he prepared it uh, and he measured the density of this and he studied it very, very carefully. And he also mixed up different proportions of hydrogen uh, with the air and he noticed that some of them went bang rather loudly. In fact, he worked out the, the best sort of ratio to get the biggest bang when the hydrogen combines with, with different volumes of air. But still, he didn't know what was actually happening. A few years later, somebody noticed that they were were exploding different amounts of hydrogen and air because it's such fun. And then they started (laughs) exploding hydrogen with oxygen after oxygen had been discovered around sort of uh, 1774. And then they were mixing these proportions together, hydrogen and oxygen getting bigger bangs. And then somebody noticed when you do this in a closed container that there's a little sort of dew forming around the sides of the vessel. And this was the key observation that then Cavendish picked up on this and he started to study this really carefully and tried to measure, well, you know, are we forming water from these two gases, from hydrogen and oxygen? And I thought, well, we should try this now. And uh, this, is, this is one that I need a volunteer from the audience. Freddie Osborne. What do we need Freddie to do? We're not going to blow him up like we did the balloon, are we? Sort of. Anyway, right. <laughs> but uh, well, with the balloon, that was just filled with hydrogen. So it was a nice sort of whoosh, and there was a nice bit of heat. But now we're going to mix up hydrogen and oxygen. And this is rather different. Now, didn't you say that was going to be more explosive? Exactly. <laughs> Freddie's looking a little worried here. Right, so we better give Freddie some safety goggles, first of all. You put those on. OK, so now, Freddie, which hand do you write with? Um, the that uh, right. Okay, your right hand. Right. Okay, mm. we'll use your left hand. Okay, just just to be on the safe side there. <laughs> now, now, now Freddie, now I'm going to put into your hand just some. It's washing up liquid. Just you see if you can keep this in your hand. So you want to cup your hand. Okay. So we're just putting a few drops of nice green washing up liquid okay. into Freddie's hand. What I'm doing over here was something that uh, Cavendish certainly didn't do. We are splitting up some water here, and this is making just the right proportions of hydrogen and oxygen mixed together. There's a little kind of glass jar with a couple of crocodile clips and then a tube coming out of the top, and then the end of the tube is going into Freddie's hand where he's got a little pool of washing up liquid and that's making lots of nice bubbles of the gas that's coming out of the jar. What's actually going on in this jar? So this is where we're using um, electricity to split up the water. And as I say, this is something that Cavendish didn't do. He had to prepare his two gases separately and then mix them together. So he was preparing hydrogen, preparing oxygen, mixing them together. But this is what we've done here. We've just used the electricity to split up the water. So rather than taking the hydrogen and the oxygen, combining them to make water with 
we're doing the opposite just so that we get the right amounts of hydrogen and oxygen for a really good bang. Exactly. This is just for convenience here. Right. So the gas is now uh, collecting in in the bubbles here. So these look like just normal, the normal foam that you would find on the top of your washing up liquid on on the bowl when you're doing the washing up. But these are, of course, filled with explosive mixture of hydrogen and oxygen, not normal fairy liquid bubbles at all. Right. Now, we've seen to have got quite a few bubbles. I'm just going to put these uh, ear defenders on you, Freddie. OK. Can you hear me OK? Yep. Yep. OK. Right. And now we're going to explode the mixture. So Freddie's okay. got a nice handful full of bubbles. And um, Peter's going to gonna light them out. Here we go. <laughs> and just to reassure our listeners, Freddie still has his hand. It's in one piece. And what did it feel like? Not much. It just... I don't really know how to describe it, but it, it didn't really feel... You couldn't very, really feel anything. No, no. So all of the energy there was going into the sound, really. So it sounded you know, very loud, but, uh, yes, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't painful at all. <laughs> and a round of applause for our brave volunteer. <laughs> how did this change the way people thought about chemistry? I mean, water is something that's kind of so important and all around us all the time. And this was the first time people really understood what it was made of. Uh, not quite, actually. They were still reluctant. Even Cavendish was reluctant to really... Well, he, he didn't fully understand what was happening here. So what, what he's learnt is that hydrogen and oxygen uh, react together and water is formed. But the problem was that, of course, there was this in, ingrained doctrine that the world was made up of just the four elements from the Greeks. This is air, earth, fire and, of course, water. So water was thought to be one of the most primary substances, an element. And yet he just showed that these two gases combined to form water. Um, he thought that actually the, the two gases here, they were modified forms of water. That the hydrogen, he thought, was well something he called phlogiston. He thought this was phlogiston, or maybe um, water that uh, has too much of this phlogiston. And he thought the oxygen was, was something that was lacking Phlogiston. It was water that didn't have enough phlogiston. And so when these two things reacted together, water was formed. He really didn't understand quite what was happening. And so this was the real breakthrough that happened later when the French chemist Lavoisier finally understood exactly what was happening in this process, that these two substances, these elementary substances, reacted together to form water. Water, then, was no longer an element, but was actually a compound made up of the elements hydrogen and oxygen. And there's lots of modern science going into hydrogen as a form of power, I guess, because it can explode like that. Well, this is so important now because because there's a lot of energy that's released, as we've seen with the balloons and as we've seen with the bubbles on the hand, a lot of energy can be given out from this reaction as hydrogen and oxygen combine. But the important thing here is that the byproduct, aside from all this energy, is just water. And so unlike all the fossil fuels that we're burning that would release carbon dioxide that we're now beginning to appreciate isn't necessarily a good <laughs> thing for our environment, of course, when hydrogen reacts with oxygen, the only product is water. So this is a very clean energy source. A huge thank you to Peter Wothers from Cambridge University. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Ginny Smith. Now, in 1799, scientists discovered a way to generate something that today we just couldn't live without, and that's electricity. And historian Charlotte Connolly is going to make us a replica of the first ever battery. Please welcome her. <laughs> what actually was people's concept of electricity before the person we're, and the experiment we're going to talk about came along? 
Everyone knew about thunderstorms and lightning. They knew that that was electricity. They knew about things like electric eels. But most importantly, in the 1780s, an Italian called Luigi Galvani had been doing experiments with frog's legs. And he'd discovered that if you take two pieces of metal, different metal, and place them at either end of a frog's leg's nerve, it makes the frog's leg twitch. Wasn't this the same guy who used to hang frog legs on metal hooks on the metal fence in his garden and he saw them twitching during thunderstorms? Everyone's got to have a hobby. Um, (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, he did that after he'd made this discovery. So he'd seen the twitching, he thought, oh, I wonder if this is electrical, and he'd made the link and then he was doing the experiment with the thunderstorms. And his theory was that there was a special kind of animal electricity that was coming from the frog's legs and was causing this reaction. How was that then taken from the concept of animal electricity to the electricity manifesting in the environment and then also making electricity on tap? Well, lots of people got very excited by what Galvani had discovered, and one particular person, Alessandra Volta, was doing some more experimenting. And to begin with, he thought, oh, yeah, this animal electricity makes sense. And then as time went on, he began to question it and thought, well, maybe it's not as universal as it might be. So he thought, is there a way of getting similar results without using the frog's legs? He thought there was maybe something about the two different metals, so he came up with a contact theory of electricity about contact between two different metals. Can you recreate this experiment for us? I can. So I've got slightly different ingredients. What Volta did, it was a real kitchen-top experiment. He took some silver coins that were in circulation at the time. He got some zinc cut to the same size because he thought contact between two different metals, that's important. He placed one on top of the other, and then he thought, well, there was some fluid in the frog's legs. So he took some cardboard and made it damp. He found it worked better with salt water. So actually, just looking at this, what we have in front of us are a whole load of squares. These are, what, about an inch, an inch and a half square pieces of... What what metal is that one? That's quite heavy. So that's zinc, that's a silvery colour, and then we've got these coppery coloured sheets. Are they copper? They are copper. Copper is rather cheaper than silver, and lots of people later on went to use copper. And then we've got these things that look like the kind of thing you'd put on a wound in the hospital. They are the things you put on a wound in the hospital. That's precisely it. They happen to be exactly the same size, and, unlike cardboard, they don't stick to the zinc. So So these are Volta's bits of cardboard. Exactly. So we take a piece of zinc and we place that down. And then because we've got a slightly more advanced theory than Volta, we put our bits of cardboard in between the two. So we first dip it in our salt water and we place that on top. And so then what we're going to do is put on top of the the cardboard piece, uh, piece of copper? Yep, that's right. So we have a layer of three things, zinc, cardboard, copper. And then we carry on, we do it again. Zinc, cardboard, copper, zinc, cardboard, copper. And here's one magically you made earlier. This one's, this is quite big. This is six inches high of these. This is a 20-cell layer. So I've done that three layers 20 times over. And scientifically speaking, what's actually going on in each of the little layers in the battery? So in each cell, you get some free electrons that move by potential energy to one side of the surface, so from the zinc to the copper. And because we've got lots of them piled up, that happens more, so you get in today's terminology, higher voltage, and no marks for guessing where voltage comes from, given that we're talking about Alessandro Volta. So the greater your pile, the more layers you have, the more voltage or electromotive force you have. And then what happens when you create the circuit is all of that potential energy discharges, and you get a bit of a sensation, which I think we should probably get someone to experience. Who would like to volunteer to help us with our battery? What's your name? Amelia. We're going to get Amelia to put one finger from each hand in the salt water, so she's a really good conductor. 
Now, with your left hand, I would like you to take this piece of zinc wire, which is attached to the bottom piece of zinc in the pile, and with your right hand, I'd like you to touch the very topmost piece of copper. It felt like a static electricity shock, which I just had <laughs> twice. <laughs> very good, and I think we can get a stronger shock if you're feeling brave, do you think? So I'm giving you a piece of copper to take in your right hand. So Volta discovered that if he touched the pile with pieces of metal that he got a stronger shock. So same again. It did feel much stronger. Very good. So Volta didn't have a way of measuring how much electricity was coming out of these things. So he said things like, I got a shock up to my knuckle or a shock up to my wrist. Do you think that would be a good way to describe it? Did it feel like it went further? Yes, it did. Thank you very much, Amelia. Is there any way we can measure this or or prove that we are actually making some electricity so people at home believe us? Well, I have got a buzzer. And if I attach it, hopefully it's going to make a funny noise. Now, I'm just going to dip the ends in our salt water to help it conduct a bit. So if I take the negative side and attach it to the zinc and the positive side and attach it to the top... No, the fire alarm has not gone off. It is working. And Charlotte, how did this change people's perception of of electricity and also what did it enable them to do once they could make cells like this and batteries like these voltaic piles we've created here? Well it took off really quickly because it was something you could do at home with really simple equipment so loads of people started experimenting and within weeks a couple of people, uh, Nicholson and Carlisle were their names, took a pile like this, stuck their ends in water and found out that it gave off hydrogen and oxygen which as we learned earlier if you put them together you get water And this led to all sorts of experiments and a new discipline called electrochemistry. So Humphrey Davy was famous for having a massive pile. And in 1807, so only seven years later, he started coming up with all sorts of new elements that he isolated. And potassium and sodium were the first ones. Charlotte Connolly from Cambridge, thank you very, very much. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Ginny Smith. And this week we're looking at some of the most important experiments and discoveries in the history of science. In a moment, does handwashing really make a difference to the bugs on your skin? But before that, let's turn our eyes skywards and ask, if no one's ever been to the sun, how do we know what it's made of? It's over 90% hydrogen gas with some helium, some oxygen, nitrogen, a few other bits and pieces. But how do we know that? Well, the answer lies in the light that the sun sends out. And Josh Knoll from the Whipple Museum in Cambridge has brought along a device that early scientists used to study it. Welcome, Josh. What is it that you've brought with you? It looks like just a little tube. It's actually a spectroscope from the mid-20th century, which hopefully we can get someone up here to have a go with. What exactly is a spectroscope? It's the instrument for looking at the spectrum of light. As we've known for a long time, at least since the time that Isaac Newton was working in this town, uh, when you shine light through a prism, the prism refracts that light, which is to say it splits it up into its constituent spectrum. So this is why you get rainbows, because the water droplets split up white light into all the different colours, and we call that a spectrum. Precisely. And how can this help us find out what something like the sun is made of? I think that the easiest way to explain it here to our audience is to begin with actually our most modern instrument that we have here, uh, a modern computer spectroscope. So we've got a screen here with a kind of graph at the bottom and a rainbow at the top. 
and it's connected to a long tube which has a thing in the end which I guess is the spectroscope. So if you point this at different things will we see different kinds of rainbow on the screen? Indeed. So what we've got here on the graph at the bottom is the wavelength of the light that is coming into the end of this tube. And then we have intensity here. And we can actually visualise at the top here the colours. So if we shine white light, we start to see pretty much contributions coming into this spectroscope from every part of the spectrum. Uh, and this is what Isaac Newton first proposed, was that actually white light was composed of these more fundamental colours. We're now looking in the mid-19th century into scientists who start to want to investigate whether, by looking at the nature of light, one can actually determine what substance it is that's giving off that light. But they didn't have a nice computer screen and a nifty little gadget like this, so what did they have to do? Crucial to the studies were two German scientists, Robert Bunsen of the Bunsen-Burner fame and Gustav Kirchhoff. One of their crucial insights was that they began to look at the spectrum that individual elements gave off. For some time, people had been aware that when you looked at the light through a prism that came off of substances, you started to get certain colours very prominently appearing in bright bands and certain colours not appearing at all. So the same reason why if you've done that school chemistry experiment where you put different elements in a flame, they burn different colours, they also give off different coloured lights and you can pick that up with a spectroscope. Absolutely. And so they started to think, well, maybe then we can actually use the colour of light to determine what different elements are giving off that light. And so if we take a specimen, a modern specimen that we have here as an example. This is a tube of neon. And as many people will be aware, when you pass a high electric voltage across a tube of neon, it will glow a kind of characteristic colour. Does anyone want to come and give us a hand? What's your name? Minnie. You can see the neon here, and it's shining a beautiful pink colour. So what we need you to do is just point the spectroscope at it and tell us what you can see on the screen. Well, it's the red colours and yellow and orange... Exactly. Is that what you'd expect? Yeah, so you're starting to see very specific peaks at certain specific points in the spectrum. So what I want to do here with our volunteer is see if we can recreate this with natural historical objects. So for this, we're going to have to get you to put on some gloves. So this is kind of about the size of a lipstick. You could quite easily slip it in your pocket and you can look through one end and then at the other end, is there still a prism in it? There's actually a series, a chain of prisms uh, throughout the tube which are positioned against each other so that the light passing through will be split into its spectrum by the time that it reaches your eye. You want to hold it and look down there. It's a rainbow. And can you see any colours in particular, any prominent colours there? There's sort of red, orange, yellow, lots of green, blue and purple. <laughs> what happens, as you see it, said there, is you get many multiple bands, but what Gustav and Kirchhoff noticed was that certain bands were particularly prominent. And these they could use as a kind of fingerprint for a given element. The next crucial discovery was to think about sunlight, because people had noticed for some time when they were working that the spectrum that you get from sunlight has this continuous rainbow effect, but then it has these thick black bands across the spectrum and nobody really knew what these black bands were and Gustav and Kirchhoff realised that you could map up the fingerprints of individual elements to these black bands in the spectrum of the sun. So rather than seeing those bands standing out they'd actually been kind of taken away? 
Yes, so this is what's called an absorption spectrum. What happens when sunlight passes out from the centre of the glowing sun? It actually has an outer atmosphere around it, and as the light passes through that atmosphere, the elements in that atmosphere absorb at bands that are specific to that particular element. So you can tell what that light has passed through on its way from its source to you. Absolutely. The crucial discovery here is for the first time you could actually chemically analyse the sun and you could determine what elements there are present in the sun. And how did this change the way people thought about science or about the universe? Well, I think it had a really profound impact on people's outlook uh, on the nature of the universe because this discovery was made around 1859, not that long before. In the 1840s, you've got people like Auguste Comte writing a book in which he claims that it would be impossible for man to ever know what the sun is made of and it would be pointless even to try studying because it's so far away. Ten years later, you've got William Huell here in uh, Cambridge gets into a heated debate with other philosophers about whether or not there's life out there in the universe. And Huell points out that there can't possibly be life out in the rest of the universe because we don't even know whether the universe is made from the same stuff as we find on Earth. But then in the wake of these discoveries with the spectroscope, you've got proof that matter out in the universe is composed of all of the same fundamental elements as the materials that we find on Earth. Not just that the sun contains elements that we're familiar with, but crucially that you can then start to find substances like iron and water on planets like Mars, which were discoveries that were soon made. And that starts to make people go the other way to say, well, hold on, the universe might be full of planets just like the Earth. The other use of the spectroscope, which we haven't mentioned, is that chemists were also using them to actually discover new elements. So a lot of the work that the spectroscope did in the hundred or so years that followed Bunsen and Kirchhoff's work was actually to discover new elements Because, of course, if you find a signature which you can't map to an element you already have, it's quite possible that you have new elements. So, for example, in 1868, Norman Lockyer discovers helium in the corona of the sun. Thank you so much for bringing along these fascinating bits of equipment. That was Josh Knorr from the Whipple Museum here in Cambridge. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Ginny Smith. And we're turning the time back this week, looking at a a sequence of experiments from across history here at the Cambridge Science Centre. Now, a recent survey of commuters' hands showed that up to 60% of travellers have faecal bacteria on their fingers. Women, administrators and people who travel by bus actually emerged as the worst culprits. You would hope, however, your doctor would have cleaner hands and these days hand-washing is a major priority. But it wasn't always like that. In fact, it took the Hungarian doctor Ignaz Semmelweis in the 1840s to make the link between doctors doing post-mortems in the morning without washing their hands afterwards and a very big surge in patient mortality in the afternoon. But how effective is hand-washing and what's really living on our mitts anyway? Mike Nicholl is a virologist and is here to tell us about what's arguably one of the biggest breakthroughs in infection prevention. Hello, Mike. Hey, Chris. How are you doing? All right, thank you. So you have brought along some Petri dishes, a fetching green colour, and they have some red stuff and some dots. Tell us more. So because we don't want to recreate the experiment that uh, Ignaz Semmelweis uh, carried out, uh, we, today we're going to do a couple of demonstrations of the bacteria that, are, uh, that live on the hands of the Naked Scientist interns. So tell us what you did to create those plates. So these are, these are blood agar plates, and they, uh, they form like a food layer for the bacteria to grow on. And what we did is we went and got the hands of the Naked Scientists, put them on the plates uh, before hand-washing, 
and then one of them washed their hands and put it on the plate again, and the second person washed their hands but with an alcohol rub, like the stuff that you find in hospitals. So you were looking to see if standard hand washing versus alcohol-based hand rubs would make a difference to the levels of bacteria, because that's those little dots we're seeing, all kinds of nice colours and things growing on the plates, those are colonies of bacteria. We have bacteria like everywhere in our bodies anyway, but throughout the day we also pick up various other nasties. So what we have here are the, uh, the hands before they were washed. Very nice plate here. You can see exactly where the three fingers of the, uh, the intern were scraped across the plate. So what are those bugs? These are very likely to be species of sort of streptococcus and staphylococcus, which live on our skin normally. Staphylococcus aureus is related to the MRSA. Streptococcus is uh, used in yoghurt quite a lot. And uh, certain strains, such as Streptococcus pyogenes, are likely the cause of the disease on the ward that Ignaz Semmelweis is actually treated. So the doctors doing the post-mortem would have chopped up somebody who had died with this infection and got the bugs in increased numbers on their skin. And then when they went to see the patients in the afternoon, then they would have infected them with those microorganisms, causing more customers for the post-mortem room the next day. Absolutely. And uh, it was interesting because the reason the thought occurred to him that there was an autopsy link was a friend of his uh, was accidentally cut with a scalpel during an autopsy and he developed septicemia, infection of the blood. And when uh, he did the autopsy on his friend who died as a result, he noticed that the lesions on, on his friend were the same as these women in the maternity ward. And so he, was, he thought something is happening, something's being transferred from the bodies, the decomposing bodies of the dead and being given to these women which is causing the disease which was a huge breakthrough because at the time people thought to get sick you got struck down by invisible poisonous gas called miasma, which if you think invisible poisonous gas will hit you, there's no way of preventing that. You have no idea, so people felt very powerless. Whereas when you actually control infection by hand washing, which he did with a chlorine solution on the doctor's hands, you can actually say we can prevent disease being spread. There must be something more to it than, or something different, of course, than an invisible poisonous gas which will kill us. And talking of hand washing, did it make a difference to our interns? It did, and they should wash their hands more often. Um, <laughs> and when you look at the hand washing, you can see there's, there's far fewer. It's, there's still colonies on there, but uh, you know, the, job, the job's pretty good. When you compare this plate here and compare it with the alcohol rub, you can see that this has killed most of the stuff that would live on the hands. Indeed, the one that's this plate, which is from the hand after it's been cleansed with alcohol, that it's almost devoid of any kind of growth. It's almost sterile. Absolutely. So the alcohol will kill the bacteria that's sort of very much attached and colonising your hands anyway as part of your normal skin uh, flora. Yeah. It seems extraordinary, Mike, that people, they must have seen these sorts of things growing. They must have seen, for instance, bread going mouldy. So how do people account for that then if they didn't have a theory or a concept of microorganisms? People didn't know at all where it came from. In fact, most people thought that mould on bread was spontaneously generated. It would just come out of the ether. And the experiments that we're talking about were, uh, occurred in the 1840s, but it would take about 20 to 30 years later for uh, Lister to show that actually when food spoiled or when wine spoiled, as he was doing, it was actually... Well, more important wine, isn't it? I mean, yeah. wine, exactly. When the wine is spoiled, uh, it's because the bacteria were falling into it and uh, actually having a great time in the wine. Thank you very much, Mike Nicholl from Cambridge University. Because at the mainstay of defending our health in hospital is good and immaculate hand washing. So we thought we would invite one of the infection control team from Addenbrooke's Hospital, Rachel Thaxter, to come and give us a lesson and also show us how good or bad we are at it. Please welcome Rachel Thaxter. 
So, Rachel, you're you're on the warpath after any doctors and nurses who don't don't wash their hands properly. How much of a difference does it really make? I mean, we've seen some plates here with some cultures on, but are they the kinds of bugs that really make a difference? They are, certainly. As Mike said, Staphylococcus, Streptococcus, we have these things on us and they do cause real problems in some patients. But it really is what you do with your hands that's the problem and your technique of washing your hands. You've brought with you this thing. I love this. Glow and tell. Tell us all about it. I'm going to ask a volunteer to come from the audience. Let's welcome them up. (laughs) What's your name? Lucian. I'm going to squirt some of this cream onto your hand. I want you to rub it in like a hand cream and then have a look at your hands under the UV box and see how much you've got on your hands to make sure you've got good coverage. Then I want you to go to the bathroom and wash your hands like you would normally at home, then come back and we'll have a look at how you've done under the UV box. Right, so we're putting them under the UV light and actually you can see on Lucian's hands it's, it's glowing bright blue. Chris, I've got some on my hands as well. When I shook your hand, let's see how much you've actually got on your hands. Right, so, so I've literally just shaken hands with you. Oh, look, all my good. fingers are glowing up actually. So our volunteers come back now. Let's see how they've got on. Ooh. Oh, not too bad, actually, Lucy. If you just see, you're actually quite good at washing this hand here. You just missed a bit of your wrist there and your fingertips there. Can you see the very edge of your fingertips where your nails are? Well, are you right-handed, Lucian? Yeah. Yeah, so you can see that actually you've washed your left hand much better because your right hand is the dominant hand. But the bottom line is there's still lots and lots of that dye. So were those microorganisms that would be potential sites for transmission of infection. Rachel, thank you very much. Rachel Thaxter from Addenbrooke's Hospital. I'll definitely be washing my hands next time I've been into the Naked Scientist's office. Our final guest for tonight is psychologist Michelle Ellison from the Faculty of Education, who's going to tell us about one of the first true psychology experiments. Now, psychology is a relatively new science. It wasn't really separated from philosophy until the 1870s, when people realised that actually you could do experiments in psychology just like you do for any other science. Tonight, Michelle's going to try out one of these pioneering experiments on everyone here to find out how good your memories are. Michelle, what do you need our audience to do? So you're going to do a list of items. I'm going to name them off one by one, just like um, Ebbinghaus's experiment, where he actually learned these three-letter words. They were nonsense words. He learned them himself, and he measured how well he could do remembering them later. So we're going to get everyone to participate. So first, you just have to try to remember as many of these as you can. All right. One, M, Q, K. Two, P C H three R L V four J P F five X D T six V K M seven F T G eight Q H N nine S N B and 10, L, J, C. Right. Okay, do you think you got them all? <laughs> no? I'm seeing some quite pained looks around the room. Was that, people find that quite difficult? Yeah. Would you believe that he learned over 84,000 of these uh, throughout his experiment? Wow. He studied them for over 800 hours. That's dedication. Right, okay, so we're going to see how many... The audience might be able to remember. Do you remember what the first one was? Hands up if you think you can remember it. There's probably 10 here in a, in a room of maybe 50. 
Shout it out if you think you know it. Okay, on the count of three. One, two, three. Good. Right. How about the last one? Hands up if you think you can remember it. Okay, we've got three. It's a smaller number than the first one. So what do you think the last one was? Close. A few mixed-up letters, but LJC, that's pretty good. Okay, so what about number six? (laughs) We've got no hands up. So why is it so much harder to remember the ones in the middle than the first one or even the last one? So one of the reasons why the largest number of people in the room remembered the first one is because as I was going through the list, it was the first one that you were kind of rehearsing in your mind. So you rehearsed it more times than any of the others. And as you got to about the third or the fourth item, because these items don't really have meaning for us, Then it just started to be a jumble. The last one people remember with a little bit higher rates because it's the last one you've heard. So what this experiment demonstrated was something that people call the serial position effect. And why was this such a historically important experiment? The first one is that no one believed that we could measure higher order thinking, just our general thinking skills in an experiment. Everyone before this point had thought about thinking skills and cognition through thought experiments and philosophy, but nobody thought we could actually do an experiment to measure our thinking skills. The second reason why it was really important was that while Ebbinghaus was conducting this research, statistics were just coming on the scene. And he, in his seminal work, took lots and lots of statistics. So he, unfortunately, did all of this work on himself, which is a criticism, but he took averages. So he'd have these lists of 10 items, and he'd have an average of how long it took him to learn a list and how easy it was to forget a list. And if he went to go back and relearn it, how quickly he could relearn it. So he had lots and lots of statistics, and he used a lot of terms that psychologists hadn't really been using before to that extent. Is this something that we can use to help ourselves learn better or to help children learn better? Well, so one of the things that Ebbinghaus did in his learning of these various lists, he engaged in what people now call distributed practice, which is doing a little bit often. And what a lot of people who study cognition and learning now think is that that's one of the best ways to learn. So we might think that it's a lot easier to learn a bunch of stuff if we block learn it, which means we focus on one thing until we know it. But actually, in terms of memory, we do a lot better if we can space out our practice and do a little bit every day. So there's a real reason you shouldn't just cram for exams. Yeah, you won't remember it. (laughs) Now, did we want to see if anyone here has got a really good memory and can still remember any of those word lists? So shall we start with one, since you now know one's maybe the easiest. Does anyone remember what the first item was? Got a A couple, a few hands. I think it's less than the first time. less than before. So that's another one of Ebbinghaus's results from his finding, is this idea that the longer you go from learning something, the more you forget. This later became called a forgetting curve. So in relation to examinations, the reason why this thing called distributed practice works is because... Just as you're getting ready to forget something, you remind yourself what it is. So you might do really well in an examination if you've crammed for it the night before, but two days later you won't remember much. So you need to do little and often and then cram as well. That's the worst (laughs) of all worlds. (laughs) So who thinks they can still remember number one? Very good, but I'm sure no one remembers number seven. Oh, you think you remember seven? Uh, Close, but not, not quite. It's FTG.
So if people do remember a random one, is that likely to be because it means something to them? If it was, say, your initials, you'd remember it? Yeah, so I tried to be really careful in creating these sets of letters to try not to have something that was meaningful. But that's another part of memory, is that the more meaningful something is, the easier it is to remember. Fantastic advice. I'll remember that next time I'm doing an exam, although hopefully that won't be any time in the near future. That was Michelle Ellison from Cambridge University. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for on this rapid tour through the history of science. Please do join me in thanking our wonderful guests who are Paul Coxon, Jerry Gilmore, Hugh Hunt, Pete Wothers, Charlotte Connolly, Josh Nall, Mike Nicholl, Rachel Thaxter and Michelle Ellefson. <laughs> for production, Georgia Mills and Daniel Blackwell and Khalil Thurloway do join us next month when we'll be recreating a forensic crime scene right here and showing you how it's investigated. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust, the STFC and the EPSRC. I'm Chris Smith. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.